What we're going to do is we're going to look at John 3, um, the first portion of Jesus talking with Nicodemus. Um, I will try to... So I had, I had done a... I'd done a sermon on uh, John 1 recently, uh, just the first, I think, 18 verses or whatever. Um, but we had made some conclusions, or I had made a case for a unified imagery that John puts out in his gospel of the life of God, the light of men, and the logos of God are all very um, equal. They're held in a tension together. And so this will... this sermon today is an extension of that as we consider, you know, John. It's actually part of like a more of a, I wish I could say it was more diligent study, but kind of an ongoing, you know, um, increased perception for myself of John, trying to understand, I'm on a journey to try to understand why his gospel is so unique um, to the other three. The other three are called the synoptic gospels and John stands apart. So there's many obvious distinctions that are, you know, instantly apparent. Um, But the thinking behind that. I want to kind of dive, I personally am trying to mine that out and trying to come to some more conclusions with that because what's called uh, Johannine literature, referring to the Gospel of John, the three epistles of John, and the book of Revelation, um, there's, a, there's an, author, uh, an authorial intent and design and pattern, if you will, and also a, um, a style that John writes in. I'm trying to personally deal with that. So, so these are just some of the things that I'm noticing and coming up with as I go through that ongoing um, process. Can't say they're necessarily inspired, but just some musings nonetheless. That being said, to see the, um, the wedded imagery of the life of God, the light of men, and the logos, which is translated the word of God. Um, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Um, in fact, before I butcher the quotation because, you know, scripture memory (laughs) not my strong suit. He was in the beginning. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. Him being the word, the logos, was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The idea of life, light, and the Word of God, incarnate Word of God, who became flesh and dwelt among us, are a major thrust of what John is getting at in his gospel. And it is a repeating theme throughout the preceding chapters. So we'll see that in John 3, but to just kind of introduce or preface, kind of catch back up from where we were the last number of weeks ago, um, this is an extension of that. We'll have a few purposes today, and we will go kind of in an expositional style, so it'll be like a verse-by-verse type of thing. I'll read the whole thing, and then we'll kind of go verse-by-verse. If I don't get through all of this section, I'll just have to pick up later, because I want to be mindful of our time. So we'll just go as far as we can. A couple of the purposes, I want to continue to develop those um, repeating themes. There is a repeating element of double meanings that occurs within John. It's over and over and over again, and we'll see a few of those in this chapter. Um, Some of the other themes I want to bring out today, I want to see the new covenant as new birth and the idea of ascension. And because that actually was the one that took me by surprise. I didn't see um, understanding, lifting up, and ascension, um, how thoroughly that's throughout the entire Old Testament. Um, which is a really big deal. So like I, that was actually kind of one that surprised me. And I want to kind of help us. I want us to see 
with light in, a way, in the way that Nicodemus did not. I like to try to tease out what made Nicodemus' sight blind, how can we see differently, and so forth. So if we can pull those off today, we'd be doing pretty good. John 3, verse 1. And I will encourage you to take notes because there are so many like, corresponding passages that I won't be able to read every single one of them. This is really going to kind of introduce or at least point you in the right direction of how to tease these out. The other one that was really helpful was the ESV study Bible in this preparation. So a lot of these references and the tie-in verses, the corroborating verses are within that study Bible. So that can help you in your personal studies. 3 verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Pause. I forgot. Let's do chapter 2, verses 23 on. This is actually... No, it isn't. Needed to bear witness. Nope, that's right. That's 3, verse 1. We've got another one that introduces it later. My bad. <laughs> there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. No one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born again, or born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can, I tell, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So, very famous passage, probably one of the most quoted scripture verses in the whole Bible. John 3.16 is present in this. But what's happening here is Nicodemus is a Pharisee, Um, and a ruler of the Jews, therefore a member of the Sanhedrin, a top-teaching guy in Israel, literally. One of the brainiest, one of the most accomplished, probably one of the most renowned, um, is meeting with Jesus seemingly in secret. 
And this is after some, uh, uh, there's after miracles. This is after Jesus uh, cleanses the temple, his first cleansing. That's, a, that's an argument for another time. But it's his first cleansing of the temple um, at the beginning of his ministry. And so Jesus has made a splash on the scene, so to speak. <laughs> um, and I'm sure he incurred no short supply of uh, uh, criticism from the Pharisees. But Nicodemus is curious. He wants to understand this better. But the way John presents it is Nicodemus is coming at night under the cover of darkness. The imagery and the symbolism there should not be lost on us. This man is without understanding. This man is coming to the light, but he's in darkness. That should be very apparent and kind of frame this encounter. Also, Nicodemus is representative of all the Pharisees. You'll see Jesus refer to uh, them and uh, you, but it's actually a plural you. Um, Jesus is speaking to all the Pharisees at the same time as he's talking to Nicodemus. That's important to understand it as well. And all of their theology is present at this encounter as well. Verse 2, by night, cover of darkness, the spiritual blindness that they're in, the we, it's a corporate, um, spiritual leaders of Israel, Pharisees uh, are present. They recognize that God's hand is with Jesus. They recognize that he's doing things. We know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. He's giving a pretty decent acquiescence, you know. So he's not coming with full pomp and arrogance to Jesus. He is trying to acquiesce and give him some due. That God's actually with you. We get that. There's no way this could happen otherwise. What's really going on here? <laughs> so there's some, I feel like there's a, a legitimate query with Nicodemus. I don't find him disingenuous in this particular encounter. Verses 3 and 4, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It is worth noting that I, if I'm not mistaken, this is the, this and verse um, 5. So 3 and 5 are the only mentions of the kingdom of God in the Gospel of John, except when Pilate addresses Jesus, I believe, um, is your kingdom, uh, or is your kingdom of, or my kingdom is not of this heaven, or this earth, um, whatever. So that's the only other mention of the kingdom of God. Whereas the synoptic gospels, kingdom of God is like the major theme of those three gospels. But what Jesus is saying about the kingdom of God and this only real teaching on it is being born again, being born again and entering into eternal life and receiving the, and appreciating and walking in the light of God is the entrance to the kingdom of God. So John, as an author, is really focusing on the entrance into the kingdom versus the breadth and the expanse of the kingdom um, as he presents this. Noticing the differences between different authors and different sections of Scripture can be just as important, if not more important, than noticing the similarities between passages and the correlations between passages. Being able to notice where one author said this and then the other one left that out and said this instead tells a very, there's generally an opportunity for an insight, just so you know. Being born again is part of the life theme of uh, the Gospel of John. 
And anytime the life theme comes up, we have to correlate light and logos, the word of God and the light. Anytime the word of God comes up, we have to correlate life and light. Anytime light comes up, so on and so forth. That's part of the design of the Gospel of John. I'm pretty convinced at this point. But life and light are connected just as death and darkness are connected. That's the contrast. So when Jesus is talking about being born again, there is a newness of life, a reception of the light and logos, or the word of God. And that's to contrast with the natural mindedness or the spiritually dead condition of the darkness in which Nicodemus, the Pharisees, and all the people remain. The entire world is is wrapped up in this darkness. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? That's some severely natural-minded response. (laughs) You're talking with the light of God and the Logos word incarnate, and you come back with, am I supposed to get back in my mom's womb? (laughs) You know, as John Gray said, that's a dunce answer. (laughs) We've all had dunce answers. We've all had bad responses. We've all not answered wisely to things, but that might be Nicodemus' big one. (laughs) Um, Like, okay, let's, let's take it up a notch. Let's not just focus on the flesh. Let's think some more spiritual things. And I think that's obvious in Jesus' response back to him. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Flesh and spirit, water and spirit, natural and spiritual. Those are the three, those are the three things that Jesus is contrasting. The things of this earth or the things that could be passing away and the things of the spirit which would remain. That's what's in contrast. So again, I believe Jesus is highlighting Nicodemus's natural mindedness in this. Pharisees were actually regarded as the ones that actually believed in miracles, believed in the spirit of God, believed in the Moses, the power of God through Moses and in Israel's history. They're the ones that actually believed in the charismatic or the, <laughs> they're the, um, they weren't the Sadducees who actually disregarded all angels and all spiritual things and were very much more natural-minded in that sense. So the Pharisees were the ones that were more power-oriented in the kingdom of God, but they didn't... What this shows is that Nicodemus and the Pharisees and their theology didn't exactly have room for that <laughs> anymore. And so Jesus breaks on the scene, challenging all of their, um, all of their perspe- uh, perspectives by highlighting the Spirit. What does the Spirit of God do? He's like wind. He's like, uh, you don't know which way he's going, uh, or which, or, but you hear his sound. So it is with the Spirit of God and all who are born of the Spirit. I guess it's also worth considering um, this birth of water and spirit. There are um, a couple different ways that this can be taken. Uh, Greg is famous for always uh, making it well, I say famous. I just heard him say it so many times. <laughs> I've heard him say it so many times. Water and spirit. Water because the child in the natural is formed in the amniotic fluid um, within the womb of mother. That is primarily water. And so it's being born of water and then born of the spirit is the new birth. Okay. Uh, this birth of God in a person. There's a couple other ways that this particular water and spirit can be applied. Um, 
and it depends on honestly what tradition and what uh, theological tradition you come from as to which one is emphasized more. I think they all have some validity. Um, so let's see here. If I wrote those down, I want to make sure I get them right. The idea of being born of water and of spirit could also be taken as a baptism in water and a baptism in spirit. Okay? We very clearly see that the ritual cleansing of water, um, A, can be spiritual, physical birth, yes, but it can be baptism in water um, and the, uh, the ritual cleansing that comes from that as well. Those are the other two ways. Um, in Ezekiel 36, it talks about, I will give you a new heart and I will put my spirit within you, but I will, sprinkle, I will sprinkle clean water on you. Out of the sprinkling of the water comes a new heart and a new spirit. It's out of the cleansing of God through the washing of the water comes newness of life, a new life, a born again reality. This is a new covenant promise in Ezekiel 36, as is it in Jeremiah 31, and a couple other places which we might actually turn to before this is over. Um, but you've got your three, I think, three dimensions of it. Physical birth is what water can symbolize. It can be the baptism in water. Um, all of Israel passed through the waters when they were out of Egypt going through the Red Sea, and that was a picture of baptism. We see that in Hebrews. Um, so that that passing through the water brings them out of the old and into the new on their way to the promised land. They are a new people, a new creation, and they are washed and ready to meet God at Sinai through this, um, uh, through this process of baptism and so forth. And as we talked about at Pentecost Sunday, um, when they're at Sinai and the giving of the law, that's the celebration of Pentecost, which is also the same day that the, God gave the Spirit, the celebration and feast of Pentecost. So the washing of the... Uh, of the people through the waters of baptism, prepare them to be receive the law, the new heart, the spirit of God, and the fullness of the new creation. Okay, we got to see that very plainly in the nation of Israel to start to see some of these same images play out in this exact order, in this exact passage. I find that compelling. Um, anyway, that's what. I think you should consider when you hear Jesus say you must be born of water and of spirit. It's not a one-size-fits-all. There's multiple images that can be overlaid and held in tension to give a more full view. Let's see if I have anything else that I need. Yeah, this is the beauty of uh, writing handwritten notes. When you're scribbling, you're scribbling. <laughs> I guess I should maybe double down on the Ezekiel 36 and the Jeremiah 31 passages. Those are new covenant promises. They're promises of the new covenant that come, that were prophesied hundreds of years before Jesus, hundreds of years before the apostles at, in the book of Acts, hundreds of years before Pentecost. New, newness of life, sprinkling of water, a new heart for a heart of stone, giving them of my spirit, writing my word and my law on their hearts and on their, uh, on their hearts and letting them desire to do after that. That's so much the intention of God that it was prophesied over and over and over again. And you'll like, I've continued to try to find all the other references in the Old Testament as I keep studying the Old Testament and putting them in context with that because the book of Hebrews deals with that so often in, rep in repetition. That I, those particular passages are the new covenant in Christ's blood are the new covenant in giving the Spirit. That's the covenant that we participate in. And it was always of old. It's not some 
thing that was just invented around the time of Christ. In fact, it wasn't even something that Christ, when Christ came to talk to Nicodemus, he should have known about it. That's how plain and of old it was. The teacher of Israel should have, would have had all of those scriptures memorized, would have known it, but had no inkling of the design and purpose of God with the new birth. The new birth stumped him. He stumbled at it. He couldn't quite ponder and put it all together theologically, even though he had every verse in the Old Testament memorized. Jesus is rewriting the theology of the Pharisees in this encounter. He's giving them new lenses of which to perceive the intentions of God from before creation. I guess we'll keep going. Verses 7 and 8. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. It's important to remember when thinking of the biblical images, also the actual original um, languages, the Hebrew and the Greek. In the Greek, um, the Spirit of God is um, pneuma, It also is the same word for wind or breath. So spirit, wind, breath, pneuma. The same is true in Hebrew. I think it's ruah or ruach, um, depending on the tense, I think. Um, But those are, again, the breath of life, wind, and the spirit of God. When the spirit of God came on David or on Samson or on uh, whoever, ruah. That is a consistent, that is so perfectly the same thing. Why, that's why Jesus, it, it's almost like Jesus is dumbing down his speech. It's like, look at the word. Don't you get it? It means wind. It means spirit. It's, wind functions the same way the spirit does. So does the spirit of God in the people. He's like really dumbing this down because that's so basic to the etym- etymology of those words. Like that's the actual definition. They are completely synonymous. And any thinking person would have probably put those two together. And so this is Jesus very much trying to condescend and go basic level with him. Like the people that are born of the Spirit who have the, birth, have the new birth are moved by God, the Spirit of God that lives within them, just like the wind moves. Why don't you understand this? <laughs> and then what does Nicodemus say in verse 9? How can these things be? Still stupefied. Still dumbfounded. I don't think he's being disingenuous. I think he's literally dumbfounded. Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Jesus is equating the new birth the ways of the Spirit in creation as earthly things. Basic to creation. Basic to our normal understanding of how God functions in this created order and how we participate. These are earthly things. The heavenly things are not able to be received until that new birth happens. The kingdom of heaven, the heavenly things, 
the depths of God's intention with us, the depths of his grace and his mercies cannot be received or appropriated or just appreciated in any regard, except that the born again, the new birth, the spirit of God recreates us. We made the point, I made the point a second ago that the teacher of Israel should have understood the new birth and the ideas of resurrection and the ways of the Spirit. So I wanted to kind of put out a couple verses here for you to consider. Um, we'll only read like one or two of them because I think we referenced the other. Um, Ezekiel 37. Everybody should be familiar with Ezekiel 37 if I say it. Valley of dry bones. Okay. Everybody knows the valley of dry bones. There's a picture of a bunch of bleached, scorched bones, totally dead things right? Entire valley full of them. And then uh, God commands Ezekiel to start prophesying over them, and then they start to take shape. They stand upright, they start to get sinews, they start to get uh, muscles and uh, skin, but they're still lifeless. And, he cont- and God says, prophesy over them again, and the breath of life comes and fills them, the Spirit of God. This is a picture of Israel coming back to life after the 70, or, or after... Um, the, uh, the diaspora, um, the, where they were all carried off into exile, into Babylon and so forth. This is a picture of Israel coming back to life. It's also the same principle of resurrection that goes on in the new covenant. God resurrects dead things. He makes them come to life. They are born again. This is the pieces that Jesus is putting together for Nicodemus that he previously was not getting. So the idea of born again, although maybe isn't the language of the Old Testament, the the themes and the images are there. And Jesus is putting it, adding on to it, making it clearer and putting the, weaving these ideas together. I want us to understand that. Deuteronomy uh, 30, actually. Well, the other, okay, so we got Deuteronomy 30 is one of the references. The other ones are, of course, Jeremiah 31, 33, which we talked about, New Covenant prophecies. Ezekiel 36 and 20, uh, 26, 36, 26. If you want to write those down, those um, are all New Covenant realities, and they are very much how, uh, where Jesus is sourcing these ideas from. Okay, as he's uh, putting them together for Nicodemus, he's sourcing them from these passages and many others. But let's look at the actual Deuteronomy 31. This is the one that actually impressed me. I think we have enough time. I actually want to read this whole chapter. But we'll actually start um, in chapter 29, 29. Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of this law. So it shall be when all these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse. We all got to remember that um, in the covenant of God, um, Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law. It is uh, Moses, after the whole first generation passed away, Moses is preparing the next generation to enter the promised land. This is the second giving of the law. He's going back over it and having them reaffirm that they're going to do it, okay? And so that's what he's, in any covenant, you have blessings for obedience and sanctions or penalties for disobedience, 
Okay? After all these things, Moses actually prophesied over them, told them that you're going to experience all the blessings that you just agreed to, and all of the curses will actually transpire in your history. <laughs> After all of these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind in all the nations where the Lord your God has banished you, and you return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and soul according to all that I commanded you today, you and your sons, then the Lord your, uh, you and your sons, then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are at the ends of the earth, from there the Lord will gather, Lord your God will gather you and from there he will bring you back. The Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it, and he will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. Verse 6. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all, all your soul so that you may live. That's pretty close to the same language that Jeremiah and Ezekiel use. Circumcising of heart getting a new heart, a heart of flesh for a heart of stone. And out of the heart, that new heart, is where the obedience to God springs from. That's the new covenant promised all the way back in Deuteronomy. I didn't know that one until today, so that was kind of cool. I like that one. That was, that's now penciled in right next to my Jeremiah 31 and my Ezekiel 36. <laughs> like it's right there. So I love that. I like to see any time that you can make Deuteronomy and Leviticus actually relevant, <laughs> that's a good day. <laughs> that's, that's a good day. <laughs> it's because it is so relevant, and the problem is it, it was never relevant for me as I grew up in, in the church. It was never relevant. So any time that I can make that plain in my understanding, yeah, that's the point of Leviticus 1. That's the point of Deuteronomy 30. Oh, I see it tied in now. That's a good day. That's a great day. The Lord your God will inflict all these curses on your enemies and on those who hate you, who persecuted you, verse 8, and you shall again obey the Lord and observe all his commandments which I command you today. Then the Lord your God will prosper you abundantly in all the work of your hand and the offspring of your body and in the offspring of your cattle and in the produce of the ground. For the Lord again will rejoice over you for good, just as he rejoiced over your fathers. If you obey the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes, which are written in the, this book of the law, if you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and soul. For this commandment, which I commanded you today, is not too difficult for you, nor is it out of reach. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will go up to heaven for us to get it for us and make us hear it, that we may observe it. Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will cross the sea for us to get it for us and make us hear it that we may observe it. But the word is very near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that you may observe it. The, the secret things, 29.29, belong to God, but the things revealed belong to us. The things revealed are the things that are earthly that Nicodemus was stumbling on. The law that God gave at Sinai, that Nicodemus had memorized the earthly things given to him is what he was stumbling on. And it's not too difficult of a commandment. But the word is very near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that you may observe it. The darkness that we experience is caused by sin. The lack of understanding, the lack of being able to see the light, 
The lack of being able to put together clearly what the Scripture clearly says comes from the sin in our hearts. It is common to man, and we require illumination by the Holy Spirit and the light of men, the Logos of God, the Word of God incarnate, Jesus Christ. Only then was Nicodemus able to put these things together. They're all right there. Secret things are earth, or the secret things are the heavenly things, but the plain earthly things are the things that are freely given. That's what Jesus says. How can I tell you about heavenly things if you don't understand these earthly things? The other thing that he says immediately after that, when no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. The idea of ascension. We see that language very clearly, right? For this commandment which I, in Deuteronomy 30, we see it very clearly. For this commandment which I command you today is not too difficult for you, nor is it out of reach. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will go up to heaven for us? Jesus is using the language of ascending into heaven. No one has ascended into heaven, right? Isn't that what he says? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. He's, he is pointing towards his ascension as the one that's actually going to bring. Let's see if I can put this together. I'm sorry, I might be jumping too far ahead. I need to put more points together. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. He's equating the Son of Man as the one who will ascend and who has descended. That's first off what he says. But that language comes from the Old Testament. It would have lit Nicodemus' mind on fire. He had to start putting two and two together because it's not just in Deuteronomy 30, although that I think a lot of what Jesus is talking about verbatim comes from Deuteronomy 30. I think that's obvious. Proverbs 30, verse 4. Let's shoot over to that one really fast. We'll see what else Jesus is, uh, what other things Nicodemus' mind is putting together. Proverbs 30, verse 4. Who has ascended into heaven and descended? Who has gathered the winds in his fists? Who has wrapped the waters in his garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name or his son's name? Surely you know. This should light Nicodemus' mind on fire when Jesus says these words. And the reason I bring this out is because when I used to read this passage, everybody's read this passage a million times, I always was like, why is Jesus being so hard on Nicodemus? I mean, like, you know, like, like what's the, he, he's obviously talking down to him, right? And Nicodemus seems pretty, you know, genuine. Like he's not actually trying to, you know, start an argument or something. He's really asking real questions. Why is Jesus being so hard on him? Because it's so blatantly obvious through the old, old Testament exactly what he's talking about. And, and Jesus' response, aren't you the teacher of Israel? How do you not know these things? It's perfectly legitimate. It's not too harsh. <laughs> it was actually very gentle and loving and gracious that he put these things together for somebody so trained yet so blind. Who has ascended into heaven? That question is repeated over and over again. You'll get it in Acts 2, 30, uh, verse 34, uh, when um, 
Peter's first sermon, okay? And he's actually quoting from Psalm 110, okay? Uh, let's see if I'll just briefly throw that out there. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The idea of who has ascended also appears in Ephesians 4.9, um, when uh, Paul is describing the gifts that Christ gave to the church, uh, the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. But the idea of he ascended on high and led captive a host of captives and gave gifts to men. That's a quote from Psalm 68, 18, which actually is worth reading. I think there was more in that passage. Again, this is, I'm not going to be able to tease out every single nuance in all of these different references, but what I want to make plain, and we should continue to pursue our understanding, you know, enliven our understanding of, is that this is very normal theology that Jesus is presenting to Nicodemus, and they really didn't get it. Like, this is biblical, it's very Old Testament, it's very entrenched in the scriptures. The very thing that they thought brought them salvation, had, they have appropriated and existed in, in darkness. Psalm 68, 68, or 18. You, who, you have ascended on high, you have led captive your captives, you have received gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. Okay, that's just a repeat. The idea of ascension is also something that's, um, we'll talk about the lifted up thing here in a second. That's, uh, that's part of this picture of ascension, is the son of, as the Son of Man is lifted up, Moses lifted up the serpent, okay? That's an image of ascension. So uh, the reason I'm diving on to ascension is because it actually correlates to this lifted up image. But um, one other point on ascension in Leviticus 1, um, burnt offerings is what it says. It might be better translated, it's at least arguable, that ascension offerings is a better way of translating that. So all of these burnt offerings are ascension offerings. They are designed to ascend before God as a pleasing aroma. Okay? We are now referencing the Lamb of God, the perfect sacrifice, ascending on high as a sweet aroma to God. We see Christ in the Old Covenant, in the Leviticus 1, ascension offerings, burnt offerings, the entire Levitical system of offerings point to Jesus Christ as the only propitiation and sacrifice for sin, the Lamb of God, who ascended. There's also the saying that it descended. It's fun to just say it over and over again, just roll them all together. <laughs> Because it's really, I feel like this is obvious for me. It helps me put the pieces of the scriptures together. The different, um, I mean, we're talking Psalms. We're talking Proverbs. We're talking the law, Deuteronomy, Leviticus, uh, the sacrificial system. We're talking the Apostle Paul and his epistles. We're talking the Gospels. The entire corpus of scripture weaves these themes together. It's almost like there's a single author or something. <laughs> it's, like, it's almost like the Holy Spirit wrote this. Like he actually knew what he was doing and in, and his intention was cogent throughout. His writing was perfect. His inspiration was unified. Even when the leaders and the teachers had no idea what was going on. 
words. <laughs> all right, verse 14. And this might be where we come close to ending. I might be able to get through all this. We'll see. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That whoever believes in him may have eternal life. The idea of being lifted up is a repeat image and also a double meaning. John repeats it three times. um, Verses 8, 28... And 12, um, I put 20 through 36. It's actually kind of more better to read. It's better to read the context there. It's a typical repeat um, in the Johannine double meaning stuff. So he's referring to Jesus when, uh, when Jesus, he's quoting Jesus about being lifted up, the son of man being lifted up. A, the son of man is a title from Daniel. But the lifting up is a picture of his death and his resurrection, but also his ascension, his exaltation to glory. That's the ascension. That's the lifting up. It's a, it's a condescension, a, a descending into the earth and being buried, just like a seed being cast in the ground must go into the ground and die in order to bear fruit. It also is resurrection and ascension all the way into glory and full fruitfulness, the fullness of the kingdom that Christ sums up all in all. The Moses lifting up the serpent in the wilderness is an immediate interpretation that Jesus is giving to his lifting up. On a, a serpent on a pole, lifted up, people would look on it, and it healed them. It saved them from the bites and the stings of the serpents that were literally going to kill them. People were dying from this. They were, sa- they were saved by the lifting up of the serpent. So, likewise, those who look to the Son of God, the Son of Man, who is lifted up, will be saved and believe on him as the source of their salvation, will enter into his life. They are receiving his testimony, his word, the very incarnation of God's intention with all of creation. And they become children of light. As we look to to the Son of God, we look to him and we walk into his marvelous light, and we are transformed. We are saved and we are healed, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. And eternal life is the inevitable conclusion. This everlasting life that is the light of men, that is the logos, that is the word of God. Life, light, word. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life just like the Israelites looking on the serpent, looking on him and believing in him. They will receive eternal life. They will be saved. They will be healed. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment the light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than light because their works are evil. It's a little bit of a scathing indictment on the audience of Nicodemus. (laughs) If you're not believing in the light after we just got as, as bare bones, basic theology, basic scripture study as we possibly could, if you're still not believing on him, your works are evil. 
you don't love the light. You will remain in darkness. And because the Pharisees and all their theology is represented there, guess what? That's an indictment on the entire nation, so to speak. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. I want to throw on the idea of lifted up. We hear the, the most concise and like clear calling of the gospel in these verses. We quote them all the time. But I want to make sure that we don't just hear it as the repetition of the memorization of uh, John 3.16 that Tim Tebow plasters on himself or whatever, or however he describes it. You know, it's, it's more than just a reference point. It is a good point. You want to definitely point people in that direction, but it's in a context. It's in a theme. It's in a structure of the gospel of John that, that is very life-giving. I love to engage in who Christ is because, or in the Word, in the way it's structured, because it, it helps me to engage and know Christ better. I may enjoy Him in His manifold beauty, His multifaceted glory, by getting to know the way that the Holy Spirit has put together the entire Word. I want that for you guys. I want you guys to all be expert Bible studiers. Not to say that I am, just to simply say I, I'm always interested in doing this. I want you to be always interested in doing it. I want our culture and our church to be interested in doing this. To be fascinated by the word of God. Who is the life of God. And the light of men. I want us to be fascinated by that. There is, let's see. We got just a little bit of time. I want to do one more that that Nicodemus would have put together. Isaiah 52. Isaiah 52 at the end of the chapter comes right before Isaiah 53, which you all should know. No, not Isaiah 53. Um, Psalm 51 is one of those penitential psalms. But Isaiah 53 is the suffering servant. Everybody remember that one? It's some of the most clear images of Christ and his life and his ministry and his suffering in the entire Old Testament. In fact, I, I, don't know, I don't know, maybe this is... I keep watching these videos every time they come up on Facebook of um, Jews that read Isaiah 53. And it's like they had never heard of it before. It's just all of a sudden, as soon as they get to Isaiah 53, they're like, the question's posed to them, who does that most sound like? And they instantly say, sounds like that Jesus character that we're not supposed to like. <laughs> Literally. It's one of the clearest things, and for some reason, I don't understand this exactly, I'm not, I, I was never raised Jewish, so I don't quite understand how they teach, you know, the Old Testament, but that chapter is re, uh, generally overlooked, is what it appears. It's not focused on, but that's a, this, the reason we're going to read it is because it's so clearly Christ, and this is what Jesus is doing to a Jewish teacher, Nicodemus. He's pointing him to this idea of ascension. That he's pointing them to this idea of being lifted up. He's connecting Moses. He's connecting the ascension offerings. He's connecting um, uh, Proverbs 30. Who may ascend and who may descend. But he's also doing Isaiah 52. Let's start in verse 13. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. 
Being lifted up is an image of being glorified. It's being exalted, okay? Even though Jesus is lifted up in shame, naked on a cross, being destroyed, it's the ultimate glory. It's the ultimate exaltation according to the wisdom of God. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. There's the water sprinkling. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him, for what had not been told them they will see, and what they had not heard they will understand. He will sprinkle them and allow them to be able to understand, to apprehend. Yeah, that is probably water and blood. You're right, you're blood. it's a blood. Sprinkling many nations um, in that particular one, because it doesn't go into the suffering just yet, might be water, but it also is blood too, because they did sprinkle with water and they did sprinkle with blood in the, priestly, in the Levitical system. But that's a good point. It could be, I would say either or, but yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Question. Yes? Could that reference when Moses took the blood and he literally like sprinkled Yes, on the altar. Yep, on the people, on the altar, that's true. Yep, and hyssop uh, with hyssop branch, right? That's what you're, that's what you're picturing. Let's go with that, the blood. <laughs> Sprinkling with blood, we'll go with that, that's fine. Um, you said that uh, the thing that you're being reminded of is when Moses sprinkles the people with the blood um, and so on and so forth. He does it with the priests. He does it over the altar. He does it on all the different instruments within the tabernacle. I was thinking about the sacrifice for the blood of the animal over the... Well, what was the sacrifice on all the horns of the altar and all the feet and stuff like that, right? So that's this picture sprinkling. Thank you. It is priestly language. It is ex- ex- uh, specifically talking about the Levitical sacrificial system. So you should draw all those conclusions and as many as you can, (laughs) as many as can be drawn. That's what it's pointing to. Okay, 53.1, who has believed our message? Excuse me. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately former majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to a slaughter. Like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, Nicodemus, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering. It's amazing it says if. 
if he would render himself as a guilt offering. But that's the condition. He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. As he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great. And he will divide the booty with the strong. Because he poured out himself to death. And was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many. And interceded. For the transgressors. That's our Lord. That's the suffering servant. No, it's Nasby. Interesting. When? Okay. I I would like to figure out which one of those is a little bit closer. That's that's a big difference. That is a big difference. Glad I'm reading a different translation than you guys are reading. We're getting all kinds of good stuff. So again, we see a, a fully biblical image that correlates of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53, the lifting up of the serpent in, uh, of Moses to heal the people, and Jesus equating himself as the son of man and as, that, as the source of salvation for the people, being lifted up as an ascension offering, rendering himself obedient, even unto death, even death on a cross. This is our Lord. This is who we worship. And this is who he was revealing himself as to Nicodemus, even in this passage that doesn't go into all the different references, but ties them together perfectly in images and patterns and themes that he was familiar with in a way that God so graciously condescending, even to those in darkness, the spiritual leaders that eventually rose up against him was Nicodemus converted? It's not exactly clear in the scriptures. Highly probable. I would definitely be. Nick, and he did defend, and he did actually raise objection uh, to the Pharisee or the Sanhedrin in general um, as to the methods of their law, and they criticized him for it. He would have known they would have criticized him for making that objection. Right. <laughs> so. It's highly probable that Nicodemus was converted, but God in his mercy condescended to this man of great learning and helped him put the pieces together. He comes to the great and to the small, puts our pieces together, heals us, makes us new, gives us new birth, and we become children of light. And with those images, and with that understanding of the sacrifice of Christ, is the table at the center point of our worship, after exalting and observing the Lord himself, and as the Holy Spirit would give inspiration to our minds and our hearts to appreciate and, and perceive his beauty. We come to the table, and we see the bread, his body, broken for us. We see the cup, the blood of his new covenant, poured out sprinkled for us, making us clean, giving us his life. It's with these hopes and joy that we receive this meal of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And this is the table of the Lord. Please come.